Hey everyone, and welcome to episode 39 of Authors on a Podcast Talking Books. I'm your host, David Walters. Today, I have the pleasure of chatting with author David Rag. Pretty succinct and to the point, David is from the UK and has had many jobs, most of which involved computers. He is getting on a bit now and lives in Hertfordshire, and yes, he has cats and he does books. And that's pretty much it. But without further ado, ladies and gentlemen, David Rag. Hello, and thank you very much for having me on. Absolutely. I told you it was going to be pretty succinct. <laughs> it, was, uh, it will probably be the only succinct thing on this call. But <laughs> I said, uh, talking off air, you read uh, your little bio from from the Blackhawks, and uh, it was definitely like double or triple <laughs> the amount of it words was, I had. As done. many as six sentences. So much to say. <laughs> so much living done. Oh my gosh! Uh, so how's uh, how's your day going so far? I know it's it's midday over there now. So oh, well, it's it's now three in the afternoon. Um, so basically bedtime at this point. Uh, <laughs> we we we've had an interesting day. It was quite cloudy earlier, so I was going to play a board game with the children, but then the sun came out, and so they went for a bike ride, and I got to clean the kitchen. I mean, that's oh. the, the really exciting thing about weekends now. It's the number of rooms to clean. Uh, I've done half a bathroom, the kitchen, and, and a bit of, of the outside as well. So, uh, yeah, really, really productive. Yes, so, so, sounds like a great time. <laughs> <laughs> it's what, you know, you've got to have something to look forward to, haven't you, when, when you're spending the weeks on lockdown? I know, right? Yeah, it's it's like, you know, every day, whenever I actually get a moment from work, because uh, I'm working from home, obviously, all week, yeah. and I sit there and go, okay, what can I do with this 15-minute increment between emails and conference calls and stuff. It's like, all right, I can clean a corner of my office. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so I long ago gave up even the, the notion of, of cleaning this this room. I mean, it's just it's the, the dust has dust on it now. Um, it's, <laughs> But I'm considering it's more like cultural artifacts at this point. It shouldn't be disturbed for fear of upsetting um, pieces of grey historical value. And that's what I keep telling my wife. Oh my gosh! Now, now tell me, didn't you? Uh, didn't the UK just like announce that they were going to keep the social stuff like the rest of the year? Well, it, it's very hard to tell um, because our government is extremely competent and very well led. <laughs> Sorry, I can't, I can't read what's on the cup. Um, so what, what they have a tendency to do is kind of uh, sneak their policy announcements out through uh, favoured members of the press as insider briefings to see what the general kind of reaction is on social media and and across the public. And then when there's a great outcry, they walk it back and say, oh, no, 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 that was never an official policy. Um, So I honestly can't tell you what their policy is uh, because I don't think they even know themselves. But they've been, I mean, well-intentioned, if cack-handed, and possibly not even that well-intentioned so far. So I'm guessing that I'm just going to spend another six months in this bloody room. Um, That's my guess. (laughs) I might might be allowed out in June. I don't know. (laughs) Um, but it's great because my children are also here. So uh, every day is an adventure. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I mean, that, you know, you, you were talking about, you know, kind of leadership, like saying something and pulling back. I mean, it's, it's cool. I mean, we, we, have, we have Trump over here talking about, in, you know, injecting, you know, chemicals into your body to, to, kill the, to, to kill the virus and then backpedaling a day later after just, I mean, he just I got mean, blasted and blasted and blasted. It would kill the virus indirectly. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I mean, what he's saying is true. <laughs> yeah. well, we're very outcomes focused in uh, political leadership. What can I say? Oh yeah, yeah. It's like you know, 
why not just try it? You know, no, <laughs> people people used to used to eat Tide Pods, and half of them were okay, right? So yes, yes. I mean, that was that was a wonderful thing. It, it hasn't killed everyone. I think was um was the, probably the headline <laughs> for that one. That was a uh, that was the like the ending credits is that it hasn't killed everybody. <laughs> Mm-mm-mm. Let's look on the bright side. Exactly. Yeah, I, I'm. You know, I'm gonna. I'm about to see kind of. Um, I guess a little bit of what you're seeing now with your kids being home and stuff. Because my wife and I are expecting our first daughter in June, uh-huh. and so it's going to be really interesting juggling work and that, and then seeing how long that's going to last. Because <laughs> usually, mm-hmm. you know, for at least for for husbands, it's like two weeks. You get kind of like the the paternal leave. Yep. And then you kind of have to yeah. go back in. But now it's like, well. I can't bring anything back home, so I kind of have to be here. So I'm like, what in the world is that going to look like? <laughs> that, that will be that will be interesting. I mean, I, I'm sure you've, you've heard descriptions of newborns as food tubes. Um, a, a friend of mine described his as like just a constant series of problems that needed to be solved, and they weren't they were complicated problems. They they were just very tedious. It's like constantly having to pick stuff up off the floor, which ironically is a, is a bit like parenting for me now. Um, so yeah, best of luck. Um, like I said, it's an adventure having my own reasonably small children uh, stuck in the house with us all day. Uh, we've given up trying to educate them. Um, they're they're educating themselves now in a school of hard knocks and all that. It's uh, <laughs> fine. Oh, they they have so much to teach us. Right, um, but obviously not shutting up. That seems to be. But there I am. They probably <laughs> learned that from me. <laughs> well, it's okay. So uh, I talked to Gareth Hanrahan a couple of months ago, and he recommended the Baby Owner's Manual. I don't oh, know if you've ever, know if you've ever heard of it. Treats them as sort of cars and things. Yeah, so it's, it's of... operating instructions, troubleshooting tips, and advice on first year maintenance. <laughs> yes, that sounds like an excellent idea. The last thing you want to do is romanticize your own child. Dear me, no. Oof. Yeah, I might have to, uh, at some point, I might actually have to, like, live stream me reading this or, like, going through it and, like, working on the baby. <laughs> I, I think that's an excellent idea. That should be, yes. And then it did end them on your, oh, your YouTube channel. Can you be uh, attempting to fix baby problem number 1178? <laughs> it's been making that noise again. Exactly. Let's go the steps, everyone. Like, like there's, there's your one comments below if you've got suggestions. Exactly, or... exactly. There's like one chapter here that says understanding and installing diapers. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, I, I think I, I think you're right. I think I need to use my YouTube channel for that. I think it'd be great because <laughs> I'm obviously not using it for anything right now. So. <laughs> Oh my gosh. Um, all right. So kind of, uh, kind of to get, get us started off. Can you, um, you know, because I didn't really get anything from your little bit of a bio, can uh, you tell me a little bit about yourself? You know, s- skip the boring parts. <laughs> oh. oh, well, crap. That's it. Then. I mean, you've, you've had it. That's why the bio is so Obviously um, kidding. But just kind of tell me, you know, about growing up and uh, I guess going through school, kind of going through your careers, uh, you know, surrounded by computers. I uh, kind of how you got into writing. Sitting here surrounded by computers right now. I'm mm-hmm. just doing a space one, two, three. I've got the work one as well. Four. So I'm just within about uh, 18 inches of the four computers, which is not anything uh, weird. I know what I'm thinking. <laughs> not at all. Um, so I, yeah, I'm, I'm just, I'm incredibly beige in existence. Um, I, 
and very like uh, standard white middle class upbringing from the south of England. So it's why there isn't really much much to say about me. Um, I grew up near Cambridge, which is not the one uh, in Massachusetts. It's the, the one that has uh, some quite old buildings and things. And uh, I was trying to think about this. I've obviously, been listening to some of the. Oh, and there goes the phone. <laughs> Who would have multiple phones? Can I even mute this thing? Nope. I don't even know how it's never come up before. <laughs> I feel like you <laughs> saved everything for this podcast. <laughs> I apologize for that. I don't even know. I've never tried not to answer that phone before. Um, right. Jesus, what's interesting about me? Very little. Um, so, yes, listening back to two old episodes of uh, older episodes of the podcast and trying to think about what were the sort of the defining aspects of my existence you know what, what got me into genre fiction and, and fantasy and that kind of thing and i i was thinking it was probably sort of two vaguely pivotal events which i would tie to i changed schools uh, twice i mean you can't stay at the same school forever most of the time um, no matter how hard you try so age about seven um, I left the, the primary, the elementary school I was at, went to a brand new school, and the kids there were into other things. They were into new things, and one of them uh, was into sort of little plastic figures of orcs and goblins and things. And um, with one of my new friends from school, a chap called James, we went to a shop in Cambridge called Games and Puzzles. And it, there wasn't a games workshop outlet in, in Cambridge then. Um, there was this, but they sold all of the games workshop stuff and lots of other things. And it was like a, a door had opened in my imagination because suddenly I was seeing all of these, you know, I'd never encountered plastic sprues before and space marines and uh, elven war dancers and this kind of thing, all with the, the amazing box art, all of the, the big sort of sets that the games workshop did at the time. This would have been about 1987, 88. Um, so that, I think, cemented my absolute adoration for Borgs, Goblins, Space Marines, absolutely everything. And I really, I mean, emotionally and, and um, sort of intellectually, I haven't really changed since 1988, I would guess. Um, so, that, I mean, that having like, The Hobbit read to me on holiday was probably also a kind of a foundational aspect um, so again, my friends were going off on holidays to places with exotic names like Lanzarote and Tenerife, and, and my dad decided that he was going to drag me and my sister on a, a hiking holiday in the Austrian Alps, which, I mean, the Austrian Alps have no meaning to me, but uh, we would be walking up and down mountains. That's the sort of thing now is actually quite an attractive idea, especially as I haven't really been outside in, I don't know, what year is it now? Um, but then being eight and being taken up uh, mountains as a holiday was <laughs> kind of punishing in a way. Um, but every time we we stopped for the day, he would then read to us, only read us The Hobbit. And what was funny was, you know, listening to description of sort of the misty mountains and goblins and things while actually being in mountains and looking for goblins and, you know, trees and all that kind of thing. Um, so that, that was probably the first experience of fantasy literature and that and... You know, all of the, the love of orcs and goblins that I got from playing with the plastic figures uh, was, was really set for life. So, I, yeah, my schooling was incredibly mundane. Um, I, I didn't have a bad time uh, and developed some sort of, you know, way to make myself feel clever by making jokes and making people laugh. And that was, again, it wasn't so much a defense mechanism as just a way of kind of attempting to generate some form of uh self-worth probably um 
And then I changed schools again, aged 13. New group of friends. But this time, not only did they play the plastic figures, actually played the actual board games. They had the game that had the Warhammer set. They had uh, advanced hero quests with little tiles you laid out. There were rule books that were D&D. And I could actually start living some of these adventures. And, and it wasn't just kind of playing with toys. It had been. It was structured gaming and that kind of thing. And then there were all of the, the fantasy books that everyone had at the new school. And so we just we swapped books all the way through my, my teens. I had loads of fantasy books. My friends had loads of fantasy books. We read all each other's books. And I think, I don't know, in the, sort of in the mid-90s, so I was just tearing through stuff. I even read all of The Wheel of Time as existed up until about 1997, which is not something that I would try and do ever again. I mean, of course, there were another, like, six books to come, it turned out. I thought it was nearly finished by the time I reached out. Whatever was the I, think, I think other people would agree with you that it was probably <laughs> finished around then. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, who, who am I to cast this version? So, yeah, that was that was all through the 90s, just reading fantasy, playing fantasy, playing computer games that were fantasy computer games, science fiction, you know, laser beams, explosions, all the rest of it. Um just classic boy stuff, wearing uh, Iron Maiden t-shirts and, you know, Dr. Martin's boots and that kind of thing, all the important stuff. Um, but it was the 90s. It was basically mandatory for somebody of, of my age bracket and uh, an upbringing. Um, so, yeah, after that, I went, went away to university, got into student radio at university, which was probably the first creative thing I'd done for a while. It wasn't just kind of programming and things. Um, and that was I mean I got in through the sports show but but the did it with a couple of friends and we didn't really talk about sports at all. We mostly just did little pre-recorded skits and things. And from there we transitioned to doing the main sort of drive time show where it's basically play records and just make fun of each other and then uh do our little sort of pre-recorded radio plays because we had sound effects CDs that I bought from the BBC Sounds Library. Um so we actually got nominated for a a Radio One student award which um I mean, it's, it's sort of a big deal, but also crashingly not a big deal. But we did get to go to an awards ceremony in London and then lost. Uh, oh. But that's fine. We deserve to lose. We were kind of terrible. I look back <laughs> on it now and I think, I hope nobody ever hears any of that stuff that we did uh, in 1999. <laughs> we, were, we were very stupid. Um, you have to somehow but, dig that up out of the archives. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't. Remember, this is a podcast. It's all fine. Um, so... After that, I, I just I moved to London. I got a series of jobs. Uh, initially, the, the only reason I could get a job was because one of my flatmates at university, uh, his dad ran a shipping company, and they wanted to hire a uh, computing graduate. And I was doing computing as one of my flatmates, and he just said, does, does anybody need a job around our flat? And everyone else had said, they were quite organized. They'd all got their jobs sorted. And I said, oh, what? I, yeah, job. That sounds like a good thing. I should have that. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the interview was basically, oh, so you're a friend of, of the owner's son, are you? Like, well, yes, and he said, we start in August. Of course, you can't do that now. I mean, this is this sort of, I'm basically a walking example of privilege, and I'm acutely aware of that. Um, but in the same way, you know, it's 20 years, and it's kind of the only way I could have got started otherwise. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I worked at shipping with a, a collection of incredibly humorous people who were from all kinds of stripes i mean one of the things about the shipping company is that it had a very international uh cast from the audience audience in the office um can't say the word cast of audience <laughs> but you you had because again shipping is a an industry where 
essentially you do things as cheaply as you possibly can. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking to you as a budding shipping magnate, obviously. All of the ships were registered in Panama or Liberia, irrespective of where they actually were you know, built, registered, run from. They were run out of London, but nobody actually admitted to owning the ships. They were all owned by shell companies, various other things. Um, and all of the sailors were from the cheapest possible places they could be hired, um, which at the time, yeah, pre the expansion of the EU with Bulgaria, Romania, lots of Russians, um, so lots of sort of really interesting international people who then worked on the ships and lots of them come to the London office. So I was suddenly meeting people who were properly international and come from all kinds of places and uh, knew all kinds of amazing jokes. Um, so that was, that was quite exciting. I, from there, I got a, a proper job in consultancy, having finally learned how to do my job properly. And uh, working at technical consultancy, everything was quite sort of project-based. So you worked with a group of people for a project, some of the projects for three months, some were, you know, a couple of years. And I did that for multiple years uh, until I got to my early 30s and went, oh, this is rubbish. I don't want to do this anymore. Um, and just sort of gave it up. <laughs> and uh, then I took some time off work. Uh, my wife offered to sponsor me she said she'd support me if i wanted to have a go at writing because i was always saying like oh i could write oh, i could write a book you know i really could write a book i probably could write a book so she went shut up either write the book or don't uh you've got you've got a year to do it and then i mean it's not fair to name names but one of us got pregnant um, <laughs> i don't want to point the finger which is what, <laughs> this is a bit of trouble in the first place um, oh, so yeah, I had to go back to work. But since then, I've been doing kind of uh, like short-termish contract jobs, generally about a year in length, give or take. So similar thing, come in, work with a different group of people on different projects with its own challenges and, and, you know, opportunities and so on. And then move on. And, you know, I've worked with some people multiple times. I've, I've kind of come in and made friends and then never see people again because I'm incredibly bad at keeping in contact. But I have friends who are much better at keeping in contact, so they tend to sort of keep things in the loop. But mostly it has been sort of software projects. The consultancy did quite a lot of work with government, which is where that note in my uh, my book by about the Foreign Office comes from. I did once spend a year in uh, the Foreign and Commonwealth Office, which is an incredibly grand building that sits off Whitehall um, between there and Horse Guards Parade. I mean, it's just a classic piece of like, British and Victoriana, actually. I don't know when it was built. I really should know. And it looks amazing. And all of the upper floors are gilded portraits, sort of 15 feet high, marble busts everywhere. Uh, the meeting rooms are spectacular. And then you go down to the basement, which is where I was working, and it's dripping pipes and moldy walls, and there are rats. <laughs> just... The whole thing underneath is uh, a shambles and falling apart and the cost to repair it and bring it back to its sort of full glory could never be paid. It could never be afforded. So all you had was this kind of gleaming facade and underneath it was rotten to the core. And maybe there's some kind of metaphor for British governance there, but <laughs> I just can't see it myself. Um so that was probably one of the, one of the more interesting jobs I had. Well, the job itself wasn't more than interesting, but it was certainly a very interesting place to work. Um, and yeah, by and large, I've just been sort of doing that while managing to do a bit of writing in the background here and there ever since, which eventually led to uh, the Blackhawks, which came out October last year. So there we go. Yeah, I mean. It's quite a it's quite a journey for being so quote unquote boring. 
Yeah, I mean, it, when your your life's work is sort of well, I worked on a whole series of software projects, and some of them never even made it into production, were never used. In fact, generally, like the more grief they caused uh, to the people who build them in the beginning, the less likely they were ever to see the light of day. Again, probably some kind of lesson there. Uh, but it's quite difficult to point to anything and say, like, see this amazing achievement. I did this, which I think is probably another thing that has pushed me back to the writing time and time again. I mean, you can point to a book, you know, your book and be like, I did yeah. this. <laughs> <laughs> there is one, one thing that I'm actually allowed to tell people about. Um, <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, sort of government, government software projects for... I don't know. I'm still probably bound by the Official Secret Act, but I didn't even do anything particularly exciting. I mean, there was uh, one project I worked on that was for, in one of its modules, cataloging seizures of customs officers, so people being stopped at borders, um, yeah, coming in on ferries or that kind of thing. And if they were then stopped and searched for whatever reason, you'd have to obviously catalog the motivation for it. And anything that was found on them would have to be catalogued and, and indexed and then, you know, kept on site as evidence. And you'd have to catalog the manner in which it was hidden. Um, so I did in, in enjoy a couple of sort of workshops with these um, customs officers, I think, frontline guys uh, who would come in and talk to me, earnest, young, what would I have been, sort of mid-20s then, uh, extremely keen, wearing a shiny Marks and Spencer suit. Uh, trying to take notes and understand exactly what it was like to be a frontline customs officer, and um, and they delighted in teasing me because I was very easy to tease. So <laughs> they would be sitting there joking all about you know the manners in which, say, if you were seizing drugs from a person, it could be hidden in a you know in a suitcase, hidden in a false bottom, hidden in a car, that kind of thing. And then one of them went, and of course, there's the stuffers and the swallowers. And I thought, I'm uh, furiously taking notes in the corner. And I said, can I just go on? I was so swallowers. Brilliant. Got that. Got that. Makes perfect sense. What, what are the stuffers? What's that? And they all just looked at each other and then burst out laughing. And one of them went, well, it's like a swallower, but from the other end. And right I bet your they, mind was blown that you didn't realize that. Yeah. Oh, no, they, they were delighted in telling me about the special toilet they had in one of the interrogation rooms, which had, like, the, the clear perspex um, tank underneath it. And, uh, yeah. Wow. What a life. So, I mean, compared to what, what many and all of our other people have done, I, I stick to my beige classification, I think. <laughs> um, so, obviously, this is... Probably it may have, it may have not changed since COVID started, but where do you uh, where do you typically find yourself writing? Uh, in this chair, it is in, in the, the junk room slash office of my house. Um, I have, I mean, one wasn't kidding about the four computers. I basically spent my sort of adult life accumulating technical equipment such as you know ergonomic chairs. And I mean, I'm, my I am I'm quite a tall man. I'm, I'm six for six or one meter ninety eight in, in euro decimal. Um, and my posture is terrible, so I need I need special treatment. I am a, I'm a unique snowflake in that respect. Uh, so I have you know the special chair, I have the special desk, I have you know everything in theory all set up at the right height, and it's just endlessly tedious. Um, but it also means I can't really work in other places. I have tried on one occasion. I sat in a cafe in an airport and did a bit of writing, uh, but it felt weird. I felt very self conscious. And I actually wanted one of those sort of privacy screens because I would have hated for somebody to go past, stop, look over my shoulder and go, mm, you think you're some good writer, are you? Oh, gosh. Well, 
Well, well actually, yes. I mean, I don't have a book out and everything. Like, no, 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 no. There was never, no, never a minute. Um, so yeah, I, I just, I need the chair. I need, I need my special ergonomic keyboard. I just, I need the, the, the screen on one side that has my notes on it. I need the thing in front of me that's precisely configured so I can't possibly use any excuse for not writing. And then, you know, I've come up with new excuses. I gotcha. Yeah, I actually saw, uh, uh, I guess it may have been last year, you had an interview with the civilian reader and they, and they asked what one thing uh, people may have not known about you that you said you were taller than Sam Sykes, but shorter than Jay Kristoff. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, assuming that their heights are, are reported correctly. But I mean, Sam Sykes, he's a big guy. I'm not a big guy, even though I'm, I'm technically, I mean, I'm two inches taller than The Rock, which you think, oh, you're bigger than The Rock, are you? No, no, I'm not bigger than The Rock. I'm taller than The Rock. Um, and I think if I actually, he could eat me. I don't think there's any real doubt about I think that. He could, yeah, I think he could eat most people. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, it would be a cheat day, but still. Um, <laughs> I, I am long and narrow and very badly constructed. I mean, it's uh, funnily enough, one, one of the, the motivating uh, facts for the, the main character's injuries and continued punishments uh, in the book is that I, I have enjoyed quite a bounty of chronic pain over the years from any number of conditions. Um, and so I wanted a main character who was just also in pain a lot. Um, my editor and I went back, and there's more of it in there. I mean, still sort of in, in the edits of book two, that's sort of he's constantly complaining about his shoulder or his face or you know, his knee or God knows what. And she's going, This is unrealistic, take all this out. I'm like, well, what the hell is that weird? Why, why, is, why is my knee clicking today? I didn't do that yesterday, and now I can't stand properly. Oh, well, you know, but then I'm, I'm in my 40s now, and it's all just a massive downward spiral, isn't it? I mean, life. Uh, sorry, what was the question? <laughs> We're just, we're just existential dread. Just. <laughs> yeah. It's never far away, like constant companion. I mean, you know, I, I I know exactly what you mean. I mean, I I mean, I'm I'll be hitting I'll be hitting thirty in June, and oh. but even in the last couple of years, I've already noticed my knees pop when I go upstairs, and I don't like it at all. I'm like, I no. was, why is this now happening? <laughs> I don't enjoy this. Just just think about how you feel now. This this is as good as you're ever going to feel again. <laughs> You'll never be as young as this ever again. <laughs> oh, that's the All right, no more, no more podcast. I'm done. <laughs> oh my gosh. Um, yeah. So I'm, I'm, I'm kind of amazed that you're <laughs> that you didn't have more of that in there. So you, you said your editor like was like, you can't, you can't have this much. Well, pain you know, yeah. Obviously, I, I, will, I will blame my editor. For- everything unless she's going to listen to this in which case she deserves all of the credit for everything <laughs> hi Tosh. um yeah so there were i mean it's basically the, the same thing that all, all of my edits boil down to a paragraph that is sort of 16 lines long becoming a paragraph that is four lines long um and it's really just the sort of the um the content that gets removed but one thing yeah she has removed quite a lot of is just you know mentioning that his shoulder is is aching or you know that his knees clicking or whatever else just in the middle of a, uh, a paragraph about something you know, he's climbing a hill and his knee hurts like take that out but it does hurt yeah people don't want to read about it oh well <laughs> people don't care about their aches and pains they just want to know exactly. that they're going to get there and if if a, if a mercenary comes across them while they're there put a battle scene and then they can be hurt <laughs> yeah yeah, well, I did get um, I got an email from, funnily enough, a former colleague of mine who said, uh, 
you know, really enjoyed the book. And I particularly enjoyed how when people got hurt, they really got hurt and it didn't just go away. Well, there you go. That's all I was trying to achieve. <laughs> just a, a lingering sense of mortality and disappointment. <laughs> it's like, all right, check, one and done. No more writing. <laughs> I accomplished what I set out to do. <laughs> yep. Always a dream. Oh, my gosh. All right, so tell me a little bit about your writing process. I mean, obviously, I guess it's still ever-changing going into book two. Um, but I guess, you know, tell me, I guess, did you did you outline a lot for book one? Did you, you know, follow yeah. into your pants a lot? Or? I am, um, no, I'm a chronic outliner um, as, as a sort of by way of necessity more than anything. I've, I've realized, I mean, the very, when I, when I took that time off almost nearly 10 years ago now, um, I had to get writing the very first book that I had an idea for. Now, originally, I did. I, I thought I, I want to write you know, the, the story that turned into the Black Hawks. That was the big thing I wanted to write. But I did have a fairly decent idea that the first thing I tried to write would be crap, and and it was. Uh, it just took me a very long time to write it. And when I finished it, I thought well, I should write something short first. You know, I can see like the Black Hawks story as, as it was to turn out to be. I thought well, it could be a bit like a Lord of the Rings kind of epic fantasy. So I should try and write like a Hobbit style thing first. So 10 months later, I had like a 250,000 word manuscript um, of what I thought would be quite a light, like poverty type story. Uh, and I then kicked that around for like two years. And, and there were days, I mean, this is, I, I spent just over nine months being off work, uh, writing technically full time. It's amazing how you can fill your days with not writing when you're writing full time. And there were some days that I'd get, you know, barely 150 words done. And what it boiled down to was if I hadn't, planned everything I hadn't thought it through then what I'd end up with was a situation where I would say well I need the characters to go to this place but I don't know why they would you know it was just classic sort of you haven't thought it out you've got no motivation you don't really know what you're doing it's all first book nonsense so it was a really good educational experience the book itself is I mean there are some bits of it that I still look back on I think that's actually quite good you could come back and you can then you know, cut like three quarters of it out and maybe you could fashion the remains into a story, but it would just it would be too time consuming, and you know, I've got stuff to do. Um, but that was quite quite a good like educational process for me. It just took about five years for me to decide. Okay, now I've learned my lesson. Um, I'm going to start writing Black Hawk. So I actually wrote the first draft of that in 2015, 2016, uh, and then so I outlined the whole thing out. I wrote the first draft, and I mean, it took me months, but I got there, and and then I got to the end, and I thought I should probably write a second draft, but also I kind of want to know what the <laughs> what the second half of the story is. I, I had an idea, but I wanted to make sure I could write it, so I took the following year. So book two, I actually wrote the first draft of, 2016 to 2017. Uh, so it was written a very very long time ago, um, in you know in sort of elapsed time terms, very recent in publishing terms, obviously. Um, and I got through that very, very fast. Like the whole, I, the, the the first draft I think was one hundred and sixty thousand words for book two, and I got through that in about six months of part-time writing, which was, you know, for me, which is unreal. And the reason I did it was because it was all outlined. I had the whole thing kicking around in my head for years. I'd outlined it all. I'd written scene descriptions. I'd written snatches of dialogue. I'd, you know, I'd planned it. I'd just uh, it just sat down every night in, and one of the things about writing part-time which i had appreciated when i tried to do it originally was that you could be thinking about the book when you're not writing it 
So I go out and you know, do my day job and things and then be walking home in the evening and just be kicking thoughts around in my head and be planning what I was going to write. And so when it came to actually sitting down and writing, it was just dump the contents of my brain through my hands. I mean, that sounds really unpleasant when you put it like that, but <laughs> just get it, get it down. You know, and, and I'd, I'd already have had the sort of the conversations in my head, the arguments sort of had the, the characters pitting against each other, just living in that scene. And all it took was... 45 minutes of thought or something uh, in the course of evening commute and that was the most efficient i've ever been outcome everything since then has been much much harder <laughs> but, but i did at least have that peak so that is how, how i try to write and it's one of the reasons why at the moment things are quite challenging to say the least because we've got the the editor book two still ongoing but covid has kind of smashed the industry to bits so Everyone is waiting for something to happen. Um, the edits are ongoing. I have a, another draft of another book that is, you know, sitting off to one side with a, a question mark over it. And I'm currently outlining a new book. But one thing I don't get to do is go out and walk and sort of come up with ideas. Uh, I mean, I'm allowed out for my sort of single uh, government mandated piece of exercise a day. But generally, my wife and I will, will go for a walk or something if, if we can. Um, uh, and if, if the kids are going to be safe, <laughs> yeah, it's not really a thinking walk, put it that way. Yeah. Um, so uh, yeah, I'm, I'm sort of I'm missing that time, but that that has been I think the the, the best time for or the best approach I've ever had is, is you know, knowing what scene is coming next, having already outlined the whole thing and working it through, and then it's it's just been like two thousand two and a half thousand words in an evening, you know, compared with like 120 words for an entire day once or twice. Uh, not that I mean that was those are rare occasions, but uh, you know that's that's how I can ship that stuff out. And I, I don't think I have I've ever quite been able to hit that before. But I do think if I haven't if I haven't outlined, I haven't planned it, I haven't thought it through, I haven't I haven't been through that kind of why is this here? Why does it matter? And I, I mean for me, what I hate most is feeling I've wasted my time. I, I hate that feeling. I mean, the pressures of my time are, are ridiculous anyway. Um, and the feeling of kind of why did I spend three weeks writing a scene I'm going to throw away, or you know why did I write an entire plot line? Or God knows why did I write an entire book that is pointless. You know, but if I just sat down and thought about it, or if I'd known all you know this kind of stuff in advance, then I wouldn't have wasted that time. I get very frustrated playing computer games as well. Like computer games with bad save mechanisms drive me absolutely bananas because it feels like I feel like my time isn't being respected. Like I don't play computer games to be challenged. I, I just I want to have fun, and you know it's obviously the power trip thing for me. The psychology of it is is incredibly basic. I just want I want to play with them like I play with my toys. I want things to go a certain way, and I want to win, or at least I want to enjoy myself. Which is why games that you know make you play the same thing over and over, like something like Dark Souls. I love the idea of Dark Souls. I'll cheerfully watch videos, but if I'm going to play it, I'm going to turn the cheats on because I just don't want to do the same thing over and over again. I don't have the time. I don't have the interest. Like, oh, look, it's that same corridor again. Ugh, no. Um, so with the writing, it's the same thing. I just, I need to have done the preparation work before I start writing because otherwise I'll miss things. I'll go the wrong way. I will, you know, I'll just have to visit the same corridor six times. <laughs> so if you make, make the thinking happen up front, then the writing, I find, is a lot easier. But of course, all writing advice or you know process is only good for one person, and it's probably only good for one book at a time as well. Like the, the thing I'm on at the moment, I'm following a different process necessarily because life is different now. So I don't know how that will how that will turn out, but um, it'll be interesting. Uh, the book might not be, but the process will be. <laughs> I said the the process of getting it finished and 
polished off and and published is going to be interesting. The, yeah. <laughs> we'll we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. see what it actually looks like. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, who uh, who would you say are some of your writing influences? Maybe maybe early on, and then even yeah. Before? I've been thinking about this um, again. I, I cheated. I listened to some of the earlier episodes of the podcast. Swatting <laughs> up, you see. Um, and I was trying to work out sort of who who are my influences. Who do I read? Now, obviously, it's bloody Tolkien, isn't it? I mean, you, you can't move because I had the Hobbit. I tried to read Lord of the Rings when I was about eleven, having read the Hobbit by myself the first time. That didn't work. I think I, I came back to it again probably after the first film came out, so that was 10 years later. Uh, I found it much easier to read below again. I mean, I skipped all of the elven poetry. Uh, if you see a large block of italics, whoosh, off you go. Um, but all the stuff I read in my teens, I was trying to work out, you know, who were the, the defining sort of voices of it. And the trouble is, I actually can't remember. There were so many books that were passed around that I was less aware of authors in many ways. I mean, I know I read lots of David Gemmell. I know I read lots of, well, Tad Williams, the uh, the original Dragonbone Chair. God, what's the name of that series? I can't remember now. Uh, um, keep, keep talking, I'll figure it out. I'll, I'll find out. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that first one, the one that ends with the Green Angel Tower. Um, yeah, that that I remember very, very clearly. And The Wheel of Time as well. But there was also was a huge sort of stripes in my reading of other things, Um I read loads of Anne McCaffrey, loads of Piers Anthony as well, possibly Piers Anthony. Um, how would you say that? I don't know. I mean, not the, funnily enough, not his uh, his Xanth series, which uh, I found kind of crap. Um, but <laughs> but all of his sci-fi. Tell me how you really feel. <laughs> huge, huge. Well, all the puns in it just were so overdone. Um, By the way, it's, uh, it's Memory, Sorrow, and Thorn. That's Memory, Sorrow, which is named after the swords. So I, was, I had a sort of, like, I don't know, we didn't have Grimdark in those days. It hadn't been invented, you see. But we did have David Gebel. We, you know, we, we did have some, some fairly nasty kind of fantasy-type things. And then you had the, the kind of the more humorous strokes. So obviously reading Douglas Adams, not understanding most of the jokes, reading lots of Terry Pratchett. Um, I mean, you know, personally, Le Guin, that kind of thing. Robert Rankin as a, as a writer of some humorous urban... I mean, it's not even urban fantasy. He's a writer of humor primarily, but that was a... a I think it's still going now. There's a a kind of a supernatural stripe to a lot of his work. Some of it was vaguely fantastical, some of it vaguely horror. And I just devoured everything, everything that he wrote. Um, and it, yeah, it was kind of a combination of books that were funny and books that were either spaceships or orcs and goblins. I mean, that's basically the stuff that I read, I think possibly to my parents' despair. Although my dad did buy me a new Terry Pratchett for Christmas every year uh, without fail. Sometimes the same book twice. Um, but you know, parents care, don't they? As I'm finding now. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, you know, my, my sort of my my teenager. All oh, loads of I don't know if they were forgotten realms books and dragon hearts and this whole series about dwarves. I remember this. One of one of my friends had I don't know, just seen like thirty books about dwarves just in in underground caves arguing with each other, and I read all of them. I remember very little, but it did. It formed this sort of I don't know this this the kind of monomyth shape in my imagination of what a fantasy story should be, and it's and it's basically the Hobbit, but you know with all the, the, the derivations that follow. And it's a group of people, some less willing than others, go on a quest to a place to achieve something memorable. You know, theoretically good at least. Um, so you could probably see how that maybe leaked into. Uh, the Blackhawks came to be. I gotcha. Yeah. Um, so 
Speaking of Black Hole, let's, let's talk a little bit about it. So it's your debut fantasy novel. Uh, it's book one of the Articles of Faith, uh, which was released from Harbor Voyager last year. So on your website, you have a section called What's It All About Then, where you lay out all of the things the Black Hawks isn't. <laughs> so you say, it's not a comedy. It isn't magical or monstrous. It isn't a standalone, nor is it YA. It's very sweary. It's definitely timey. It's really, really sweary. An homage to what you read growing up, and it's seriously very sweary. So tell me, what exactly is it? <laughs> uh, yes. Well, it, I mean, I call it sweary low fantasy. And again, I have to put the sweary bit in because it catches people out. Like the opening line of dialogue is uh, thrice damn big fucker. Can I say that on the podcast? Yeah, absolutely. No. Okay. Uh, I'll, um, I'll make a note that uh, there's there's adult content. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. It's the bloody phone again. And you're busy today. You're popular. Uh, Nobody. Ah, oh, this is just. No one uses this phone. This it's probably it's phone. probably the government calling you to stay indoors. Well, it's <laughs> either a scammer or it's my mother-in-law. Um, <laughs> I know that there is a distinction. Honest. Uh, <laughs> I was about to ask. <laughs> he says, tapping the side of his nose. Um, oh my gosh. So what? What is the black hole? I, I consider it a work of life fantasy. I wanted to write something that was second world, something that was character focused and something that was a subversion of the classic kind of hero's journey. That's, that's basically it. So I include yeah, the, the, the sweary disclaimer because I have worked in a number of offices where I think the best description for it among software developers is, is it's programmers to reps. You have a group of people who would probably not use a, a bad word in front of their own families who sit in front of a keyboard all day and just scream at the computers, just, you know, F this and all that, you know, just constant streams of invective because nothing ever works, does it? Let's face it. And, and software is, is probably <laughs> worse than most things for things not doing what you meant. They do, they do what you tell them to, not what you meant them to do. Uh, so I was surrounded by people who swear about everything. And it's, it is kind of how people talk. And I, mean, I had this discussion with my mother who um, said, I, I quite liked your book, but um, it had too many fucks. And I thought, well, <laughs> thank you. I mean, I was blushing to hear my own mother swear. Can you imagine? Right. A lady, a lady of her Asian refinement. Um, but uh, she, she's not accustomed to the same environments that I am, put it that way. So, yeah, I mean, in the same way that I tend to sort of moderate my language around my children a bit, uh, marginally more than my wife does. Um, you know, the, we're evoking a particular way of, of interacting between people who are not collegiate but have to spend time with each other in order to achieve a collective task, which is a reasonable summary of a lot of the jobs I've had. I gotcha. Um, so the swearing part, anyway. Right. And yeah, the rest of it was all about basically trying to create something that looked a lot like the sort of standard heroic quest while also kind of flipping a few bits here and there just because I could, because, you know, I'm uh, kind of tittering full. Right. Could you, could you uh, give maybe a, uh, a sales pitch and sell the audience on why they should read the Black Hawk? <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I should I should have had this prepared, shouldn't I? I could look at the back of the book, but then you know we know what that's like. Um, <laughs> the Black Hawks is is basically a story about a bloke who has very fixed ideas about stuff he has no practical experience of, and um, it is about him and his ideas 
meeting the real world at high speed uh, and the effects on both him and the world of that interaction. Um, it is, it's about someone trying to make sense of a world that they don't really understand, trying to go out on, on their own and meeting a lot of interesting but quite dangerous people uh, in an effort to try and do some good. Or are they? <laughs> so yeah, I, actually, I, actually, I actually said that your debut was an enjoyable fantasy route rife with morally ambiguous characters, sarcastic and witty banner, and enough swordplay to keep Inigo Montoya entertained. <laughs> to say. Thank you. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I, I love, I love the novel. I, um, you know, I, I know a lot of people, I guess, and I think you talked a little bit about this on your website is a lot of people go in with maybe, maybe not unrealistic expectations, but they're expecting something, I guess, different than what you give. Would you, would yeah. you say that's right? Yes. Well, as I said in, in that, I think it's in that blog post, um, Lots of people have said to me, it wasn't what I expected, but, you know, in a good way, or at least, I mean, some of them have added that last part. Um, and it, there is always that sort of slight question mark of kind of, well, I wonder what your expectations were and where they came from. And I think, I mean, in some ways, I, I, I didn't call the book the Black Hawks. The book was originally Articles of Faith. Now, uh, I mean, it turns out calling it the Black Hawks was a much better decision, but it, it leaves some people saying, but why don't the Black Hawks turn up until, like, page 60, whatever it is, Um Similarly, you have a lot of people thinking, well, it's going to be like a sort of a humorous pastiche like Terry Pratchett or, well, the comparison with Kings of the Wild. Now, I still, uh, I'm going to make this admit, you can edit this bit out afterwards. I haven't read Kings of the Wild. Um, I'm sorry. I haven't yet got to it. It is on my shelf along with Bloody Rose. I can, I can tell from your shocked silence that you, you've fallen off your chair. <laughs> but well, there are plenty of people who haven't, but you need to. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, but for what I understand, it's a genuinely funny book. And indeed, the, the trouble is, I haven't even heard of it until they sent me the cover design and uh, sent, it, sent it to me my agent. And he went, ah, right, so, you know, very similar to Kings of the World. They're going for that same kind of vibe. And right, it's the same artist as well. And I said, hang on, but the same artist, that, that's Richard Anderson. He's the best artist in the entire. <gasps> oh. And then I looked up, uh, yeah, the Kings of the World cover, and I looked at mine, and I went, yes, I see what they're doing here. It does look quite similar. But um, you can see why, because it does have parallels, but at the same time, it's obviously not the same kind of book. Um, it's not humorous fantasy pastiche. It's not Terry Pratchett. It just has some people that say some things which I think are funny, but generally the narrative isn't particularly funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, and, and I feel, uh, I guess while I was reading that, you know, that maybe some of the, that the comparisons, you know, undeliver or underdeliver in ways that aren't necessarily fair, you know, to to you mm -hmm. and, and your what you meant to bring across in your book. Because yeah, I, I think you're right. When it, when the cover was first revealed, everybody went, "Oh, it's very like Kings of the Wild," yeah. and they automatically like assumed they were going to be reading a book that was like in the same world or something. And then when they got done, they're like, "Well, that wasn't like Kings of the Wild at all." And I'm like, no, it wasn't supposed to be. <laughs> yes, it was. It was. I mean, doubly confusing for me because yeah, still having brackets, not read Kings of the World, yeah, but totally going to, totally, totally. Um, yeah, <laughs> you know, when when people are saying, is it like Kings of the World? I, I don't know. Does <laughs> uh, Kings of the World? It's Kings of the World feature a lot of people calling each other names. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I mean, that's really not the main part. Of it. I mean, like, because. 
I mean, I guess, I guess the 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 main comparison I would make was just that you have mercenaries and mm-hmm. there's some humor in their banter. I mean, that's really the only two comparisons I can make yeah. from the books. And they both have a cover, you know, art done by Richard Anderson. That's really yes. it. I mean, it's two different publishers, two completely different stories. Uh, yeah. It's in red as well. I mean, it's... Uh, What's so that? The title's in red as well. Yeah, exactly. So. Exactly. But... Thank you, Rod, for your own back here. Yeah, and I mean, honestly, I thought that the Blackhawks as far as the mercenary group themselves, I thought they more resembled maybe the mercenaries that I found like Michael Fletcher's manifest delusions novels or an Adrian Selby's the winter road. Um, I don't, I don't know if you've read any of those, but no, um, I haven't, but it, I, I kept meaning to the winter road is on my shelf as well. Okay. And I understand. I think uh, Mr. Selby's works project manager for a long time. So I do wonder if that has um, <laughs> filtered through into a similar kind of worldview. <laughs> Quite possibly, because it, you know, it, it's. I feel like maybe Kings of the Wild is more like of a light-hearted mercenary group, whereas yours is like hardened veterans that yeah. are just—they're just angry at the world. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it, it's not for me to describe them as embittered by failure. Uh, on the other hand, it is that sort of <laughs> their interactions and, and, and origins are from the kind of jobs that I have had and the kind of people I've worked with. And, you know, not, not to individuals, certainly. I haven't ever, like, worked with, with Rennick or any of these people um, because, you know, they'd have killed me because I'm a prat. But um, <laughs> it's that same feeling, if you like, of joining a pre-existing group that already has its own dynamics, that already has its own history, but they haven't, they weren't formed as a single unit. You know, it was this guy who knew that person and then that one joined and is the sort of the junior member. But then, oh, that person knows them from, from way back and now they've come in. But So they know two of the people, but not that one. So there's a bit of, you know, and then, and then you've come into this sort of pre-existing network of histories. Nobody likes each other that much, but they work together because it's effective and it's about the only way they can get paid. So you have this kind of friction of interpersonal relationships and check you know checkered histories and sort of crisscrossing relationships and the fact that you know no one ever gets on with everybody all the time anyway least of all when you're trapped together in a house under lockdown sorry my mind's wandered again um <laughs> everything's fine uh, but the the kind of the sense that I wanted to give and you know, what I was aiming to give was that this is a professional unit and that's professional in the sense that they're doing it for money, not that they're particularly good at it. Right. Um, but the only reason that they are working with each other is because they've got no alternative. Like every, everything else has failed for them, which is why there is yeah an element of kind of bitterness and <laughs> frustration and a general sense that, you know, they're not given the respect they deserve, certainly for, for some of them. I gotcha. Yeah, I mean, you're talking about how you kind of culminate them as based on, I guess, people you've interacted with throughout your career. I mean, I can kind of see that it's like a it's like a mixed match group of people that are all thrown together to work on a project, and it doesn't matter if you've ever interacted with them before or if you have and you don't like them very much. <laughs> but and then you're the new guy that's just kind of thrown in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. It's always, you know, who's the new guy and then trying to sort of, where do you stand? How do you approach? Who's friendly? Who's not friendly? Who, who could you be pals with? Who do you need to watch out for? You know, all this kind of, and especially if you do a, a series of 
reasonably short-term jobs and you, you join an existing team of some description. You know, it's just that kind of, it's the psychology of it, even though obviously the situation in the book does not directly correspond to any professional engagements I may or may not have had. <laughs> um, so <laughs> I have to ask this question and you might be upset that I ask it, uh, but you may also be able to, to you know, answer it fairly well. Um, so <laughs> the original, I guess, uh, uh, sales point or whatever that maybe Harper used, it said it was perfect for fans of Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch, which also could be the reason that a lot of people went into it thinking it was something different. Um, mm. Twofold question. Do you feel like it fits that mold and how scared were you when it was released to see if the person <laughs> stuck? <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. Well, so I, again, like confession time. I only read *The Lies of Locke Lamora* uh, last year. So both both of those books, book one and book two, were written long before I'd actually ever read any Scott Lynch. Um, so unfortunately, I again wasn't really in a position to judge. But I knew that people really liked his work, and so when when it was described as like you know similar to Lynch and Abercrombie, and I think largely because of the swearing more than anything else, there was an element of kind of that's amazing. And also, oh my God, people are going to be so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, not everyone was. All right. Um, <laughs> funnily enough, my first, uh, my first encounter with Jeremy Crombie's work goes all the way back to when I first started writing. I showed, I showed the thing I was writing to two of my friends. I showed it to four of my friends. But two of them bothered to read it. Um, and that was incredibly kind of them to do that. One of them went, I thought it would be funnier. Um, and the other one went, oh, this reminds me a bit. I mean, it's not as good as, but it reminds me a bit of, have you ever heard of Joe Abercrombie? Oh, my gosh. And I, and I haven't. Um, so that goes all the way up to 2011, that would have been, or maybe early 2012. So I think he put me on the first Nor trilogy, which I then read over the next sort of couple of years, probably. And I remember thinking as I was reading, I, I can see why he thought that, but no, I don't think my stuff's like this. Um so you can imagine how delighted I was <laughs> when I turned in the, uh, the manuscript and all that and uh, and got the kind of, yes, we're going to pitch it as being like Joe Abercrombie and Scott Lynch. And I thought, oh. <laughs> You're kind of like, shit. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can see where you might think that. Uh, yeah, it, it does have a lot of swearing in it. But then, I mean, it, I'd have to go back. I've got, I've got most of Mr. Abercrombie's works gets sitting on a shelf upstairs. I still haven't got to the, the second uh, trilogy or the second set of three at least. And and I've got all of the um, the Scott Lynch books, all of the Gentleman Bastards to go as well after the first one, which I finally got to. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, really behind on my reading. It's so bad. I'm, I am, I am trying to catch up, but um, yeah, it's. It's been, I mean, spending so much time reading bloody research books, that's the other thing. If I find myself reading it, I've got a stack of books behind me at the moment of stuff that is tangentially related to things that I'm writing about and I feel like I really need to get into the, the depths of in order to be able to understand at least, you know, where the food comes from in the this the sort of village I'm writing about in this one scene, like how how would what is its economy? How are people fed? Fed? How how do they work? What are the jobs? You know, how would, what is the layout of the buildings? All this kind of thing, because I can't visualise it without that information. But needless to say, if and when you actually get the manuscript out of it, it will be they walk through the village. There were huts, and that'll be it. Um, <laughs> so. Uh, 
you know, I don't make life easy for myself, which is also something my editor continually tells me um, in a kind way, I hope. Yeah, I, I can see that. Uh, yeah, I always wonder how like research really goes into the writing process. I, mean, I understand that you've got to research to be able to kind of visualize what where you want to write, and what you want to write about. But like, you know, like you said, when it comes to it, a lot of that is cut out. <laughs> yeah, it's just yeah, like, yeah. It's it's just like and here's this one street. <laughs> you can you can think of it as kind of an inverted pyramid of sort of all the stuff I read going into all of the notes I made, going into the first draft, going down into the second draft, going down into the thing I actually turned in. And then finally, once my editor has gone through Word and just done <laughs> removal changes on it, uh, then you have this tiny little sort of diamond hard nugget of prose at the bottom. Uh, which I like to think is a sort of, even if all of this, I mean, there was, there was a lot. I know people have, have said, like, well, the Black Hawk's quite light on the world building. Like, there was more. <laughs> <laughs> but, but it, you know, then this, is, this is what good editing looks like. It's not about, uh, we're going to take stuff out for the sake of taking it out. Um, it's about, like, what, what kind of book are we doing and what fundamentally matters the most? What is, what is the key to this book? You know, why are people going to enjoy it? And if they're going to enjoy it because we've got, for example, a fast-paced, tight narrative driven by characters with some twists and, and surprise on the way, you don't need a huge amount of kind of detailed world building and info dumps and history expositions and all the rest of it. And, I mean, one of the hardest parts of editing the first book was trying to pare down all of the preparatory work that I had in that opening. And I know people still say it, it's hard to get into, and I understand why, because what you need to set up in that sort of you know first 50 pages whatever it is is all of the kind of the political background to then have the narrative go shooting off in a straight line but otherwise the ending won't make sense mm. <laughs> so you know I, I like to think that i will do a better job in future now i know sort of what i'm aiming at a little better i think i mean that's probably like the hardest lesson again you know it's the second thing I ever wrote so there's a lot of stuff in there which I would have written in the first draft and wasn't massively changed right up until the edit so yeah it's evolving yeah all right so I have to ask and, and you've kind of answered this a little bit you've kind of beaten around the bush on it a little bit but um can you <laughs> tell me the influence behind your character women <laughs> because when we're talking about sweary swearing uh, Lennon is the cream of the crop. Uh, yeah, I I don't know. So I, I saw something like, um, I think it was N.K. Jemison tweeted the other day about, uh, in the context, funnily enough, of fan fiction and asking people not to say their fan fiction. But she said writers are a bit like uh, mental pack rats, something like that, in that writers will unconsciously collect things as they go along. And then later on, they will have the thought, in their head and they won't necessarily know where it came from. So, you know, an idea on influence or something like that. Um, so Lemon appeared fully formed in my head uh, in terms of sort of how she was, how she fitted into the group, the way she spoke. And I mean, she had to be Celtic. There was obviously no alternative for that. And just the general sort of sense of, you know, someone who probably carried a lot of hammers around um, and muttered and complained and was the butt of everybody's jokes, but also, you know, capable in her own right and that kind of the way of speaking. And I can't point to any one thing, but I, I think there's a huge number of uh, 
individual things that I've kind of collated like like lint over the year that's formed this sort of giant fluff ball that is lemon. <laughs> you know, it's like probably the, the hair from Merida in Brave. Um, I don't know, do you remember the film The 13th Warrior? Yes. So do you remember Tony Curran, the uh, um, in, extremely talented Scottish actor in that, is the one sort of Celtic member, I think, of, of that group. And I think that sort of, that lit a fire in my head as well. And just, you know, I've worked with some fabulous Scottish people and nearly Scottish people um, over the years. And it sort of, it just leaves an impression. It leaves sort of an indentation in your head and then and you fill it up. And Lemon could only ever have been the way she was. And I'm sure, I mean, kind of almost lying in wait, someone will come up to me one day and go, your, your Lemon character, that's just X from Y. And I'll go, oh my God, it is. That's <laughs> Oh no, that's where that came from. I mean, I had, I had something I wrote the other day, and I was, well, no, it's going back a couple of years. Um, I came up with what I thought was quite a neat plot device and was pleased with myself. And then six months later, I was watching the film, I think Paddington 2 with the kids, and I just had this moment of, oh my God, I got that from Paddington. <laughs> uh, and I, I can't honestly remember what it was, but it was that kind of that feeling of, of sudden kind of, I thought I had that idea, but I just, I got it from somewhere else. I stored it. I kind of wrapped it in my own filth and then presented it as something of my own, thinking I was very clever. So yeah, I, I kind of live in fear of being rumbled. Don't don't tell anyone. <laughs> oh, oh my gosh! So uh, how do you how do you uh, find somebody that's nearly Scottish? Um, um, what does that mean? <laughs> <laughs> you'd, you'd be surprised. Um, I, you know, again. It's unfair to name names, but there is there is someone in my friendship group who's referred to as the pseudo Scotsman um, because it, it, by every measure he should be Scottish yet somehow isn't. Gotcha. Okay, that that makes sense. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, last question about the Blackhawks, uh, and I've seen. Uh, I mean, I think even Robin Hobb mentioned this in her uh, in her review, but uh, I think I know where this is going. <laughs> Why did you end on a cliffhanger? How could you call it a cliffhanger? It's just a differently <laughs> phrased ending. Um, well, you know how I said earlier how when it came to writing the Blackhawks, I set out to create something which had the shape of the classic quest, but with certain parts sort of reversed or subverted, you know, flipped, the kind of where your expectations were for the narrative to do a certain thing. For example, for the innocent farm boy to join up with the wise mentor character and to learn the skills he needs to challenge the Dark Lord and, and win at the end and that kind of thing. So without wishing to delve too much into spoiler territory, because in case there's someone out there who hasn't yet read the book, there were a number of places where I thought, what I'm going to do is the opposite of that. Um, and, yeah, providing a well-resolved ending is, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, isn't it? <laughs> so I thought I'd go the other way. I gotcha. Was, was that the question you were expecting me to ask? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Although I am, I'm so, I'm so disappointed that nobody told Robin Hobb it was part of a series because she said it's the only reason she didn't give it five stars. <laughs> Is it, if, be, like, if I could be Cher and I could turn back time, then I would just, I would get a post-it on her desk that said like BT Dubs Part One of Two. BT Dubs. Oh my gosh. All right. Um, I got, I got to end it on that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Bobby, Bobby, you don't know me that's it no longer part one of two <laughs> um 
Yeah. So, uh, so speaking speaking of part one of two, what are you working on now? Are you working on uh, yeah. Are you working on book two still? So book two. Well, as I said, the first draft of book two is now almost older than my children. In fact, I think it is older than one of them. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is ongoing. So the edit the edit is ongoing. Unfortunately, everything is shot to bits uh, in publishing world. So we were hoping to get it released. At the end of this year, October was was the provisional time, and it is looking increasingly like it's going to slip into next year. So, in fact, possibly even March next year, uh, which is really disappointing, um, as you can imagine. I mean, I want to get the book out because there's a lot of people who have been asking me, uh, (laughs) when's the next book out? How could you leave the first book like that, you absolute... I forget how that sentence finished, but um, (laughs) it was... You know, people want the second book. I want to give them the second book. And unfortunately, circumstances are making it really, really hard at the moment. So it is, uh, it's very sad, but nothing is confirmed yet. Maybe, maybe things will switch around, but uh, it's looking more like spring next year than uh, this year, which is very sad news. Um, In the meantime, I've got uh, a draft of another thing, which is probably not going to come out anytime soon. And then, uh, as I was mentioned earlier, I'm currently outlining another uh another thing which if if things go to plan i will start actually writing quite soon as i said i have to outline the bloody thing before i can write it otherwise i'll just go wrong um and i can't tell you what that is but if and when that's confirmed that will be uh, an extremely exciting announcement um but it needs to be confirmed first and so no, nothing is certain uh, everything is permitted and that's the assassin's creed motto <laughs> Yeah, you, you, you're writer types and you're, oh, I can't talk about this, but it's going to be really great. <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm not really doing anything. I'm just sitting here staring out the window. Um, <laughs> do you guys even even write the books? Is it just the editors that do it? You just are, are telling everybody that, oh, I have this great thing, but. <laughs> Don't tell anyone that. That's all secret. <laughs> That's fine. I'm going to get Dirk Ashton to write my next book anyway. There you I mean, go. But it's because yeah. I, I know editors, you know, or, or your agents, or whatever, you, you reach out to them and you're like, all right, what can I say when I'm asked these certain questions? And they're like, say this, this, and this. And it's like, okay, so I'm just the mouthpiece for this now. <laughs> I mean, but the part of it is because I'm publishing in such a wonderful industry and it's full of wonderful, wonderful people, but everything is kind of fuzzy. Right. There's this sort of a general vagueness to it all. And I think, and a lot of it is essentially it's the goodwill. It's the goodwill of the people in it that keep everything moving. But goodwill is quite hard to nail down. If you like, you know, you, you try and pin it down and it evaporates. Um, so as a result, you know, what, what can you tell us for certain? Absolutely nothing. What can you kind of draw us a little black and white sketch of on like the back of an envelope and hold up from a distance that was kind of blurred on the webcam that could maybe say something like, you're giving too much away. Um, <laughs> it's just not worth the effort, is it? Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's like watching an episode of The Masked Singer and seeing all the clues and be like, I have no idea. Maybe it could be this person. It could be also yeah. like 60 other people. Yeah. But it, it's also, it's, yeah, by the time that the, the giant giraffe's head comes off or whatever you're like mm, yeah yeah over it now um, yeah <laughs> in some ways the, the timelines are this like i'll stand up and make my trump and announce it in uh, june next year or something and everyone go oh is that the thing that you yeah i don't care um but it's, timelines are weird yeah exactly exactly so uh you, you mentioned not having you know tons of time to read but you you know do try to read when you can what uh what are some books you read here recently or maybe 
maybe even over the past couple of years that you don't uh, get well, the love I've they deserve. Been, I have been making progress. Really. I did have a bit of a kind of um, a, a, an existential panic at the beginning of lockdown and thought I could never read anything again. So I went back to reading some of the old Terry Pratchett, the Night Watch books. Um, uh, well, the, the Watch books, including Night Watch, Red White. <laughs> four of them in a week and a half and that <laughs> I was reading things again which is great um I'm actually I'm reading an arc of the girl and the stars at the moment um which is fascinating uh not finished it yet no idea what's going to happen but it's just uh, it's the first Mark Lawrence book I've ever written and it's just it's really eye-opening um in in terms of kind of the world, the people, the law, the landscape, the way the story's told. Um, um, it's, yeah, it's, I might even finish it before the official release date, which would you know, have saved me about, yeah, two days. Um, <laughs> and uh, the only other thing, which is reasonably recent that I've read, uh, is The Bone Ships by R.J. Barker, which is, again, just a, a wonderful work of art. Um, and, yeah, massive props to R.J. for that as well. So apart from everything else I've read is, is really, really old. And uh, again, I've been reading just sort of research books or, or books that are trying to kind of evoke the, uh, the things I'm doing. I mean, a wonderful book about the history of Georgia by uh, Donald Rayfield called Edge of Empires, which is my go-to for Caucasian history. Um, probably not that relevant for most people. <laughs> I gotcha. Yeah, you may be one of the first authors I've had on the podcast that's actually read a book that I haven't read yet. Oh, well, as far as far as like you know, very recent releases, like I haven't I haven't even started the Girl in the Stars yet, and I'm, and I'm I'm kind of jealous. I did make a real effort with it. I, I did. I mean, I, I was sent the uh, I was sent the arc, and I thought this is a, an actual chance for me to read a book to to make use of an arc and, and read it before I could have just bought the thing anyway. Wait, you mean you mean that's what you're supposed to do with those? <laughs> it turns out, yeah, yeah, they're not not just like shelf decoration. Um, so I have, I did prioritize that one and I still, I mean, I've, I've got, what have I got, five days left to finish it and I, I'm confident of doing so. But it is, I mean, we've had some reasonably decent weather this last week. So I've been trying to make a bit of time during the working day to nip out and just sort of sit and while I have my lunch outside and, and uh, read a bit of a book. Uh, I mean, the children will do their absolute best to ruin that, but um, oh, they can't get me every time. <laughs> That's that's uh, that's the joy of it, right? Yeah, um, yeah. Oh, so much to come. I know. Uh, yeah, and I have to agree. Yeah, the Bone Ships is is great. Um, I'm I'm really looking forward to book two in that series. Uh, I love R.J. Barker and his books. I mean, he's he is he is quite a character uh, himself, but he also writes some phenomenal characters. That his uh, his Wounded Kingdom series with uh, uh, was with Girton Clubfoot was just absolutely phenomenal. Um, yeah, which I still haven't read, but it's it's on. Okay. I mean, I, I remember. I think maybe this whole lockdown thing is is my my fault. I think it's a curse because I remember saying to somebody uh, a few years ago, "I'm so behind on books, on TV, on films, on games. Can we just like have a stop to new things so I can catch up on all the old things?" Uh, and so now we have this lockdown, and it turns out I'm still not catching. I think it's uh, I think it's actually a collective like wish from a lot of people. And yeah, I haven't caught up on squat. I uh, yeah. I actually finished I finished uh, Shorefall by Robert Jackson Bennett yesterday. Oh, I want to read that. Oh, it's so good. Uh, and I listened to uh, Riot Baby by Tochi, and I'm gonna just ruin his last name. But I think it's Anyabuchi. Um, it was a tour.com novella that came out in January. 
I think. Um, but it's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a superhero novella, but it also is about uh, like inequality in America. Um, oh. and it's written about these two siblings that have uh, these supernatural abilities. Uh, but it's like during like the riot, the riots in like the nineties. And, uh, and then it's like, it kind of jumps back and forth between future and present. It's pretty good. I mean, it's been 172 wow. pages or so, but, but yeah, oh, I, I have not been doing a whole lot of reading at all uh, during yeah. this whole COVID thing. I've just been working every day and it's, I'm like, I, I try to, I try to listen to books when I can and try to read when I can, but I've been reading the same three or four books for a month. <laughs> so, yeah. so the fact that I was yeah. able to finish, you know, a couple was, was, uh, was kind of like, you know, kudos to me. So. It is. It's an achievement, but at the same time, you know, I, I have well, I've got shelves here. I've got shelves upstairs. I've got shelves everywhere, and I, I have that kind of the, the solemn returning of the book to the bookshelf. Yeah. And I have like different shelves, books that are read and books that are unread, and so moving the book from the unread shelf to the red shelf is it is like a ritual. It's you know incredibly solemn and wonderful time. But at the same time, you just look at the sheer number of groaning on the unread shelf. I'm like, oh god. I know. My wife wants me to get more ebooks um, because then they won't take up much space in the house. But I mean, no, that's that's letting the man win. Yeah, I know. I uh, yeah, my wife's kind of the same way. She goes, you at some point you got to stop getting books, and she's actually been pretty happy because during this whole COVID thing, you know, publishers have stopped sending physical books, yeah. and they've just done ebooks. Which I'm kind of happy about, kind of not, because I'd still like to have physical copies of it. But she's like, at some point, you you're not going to be able to contain them. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I got to. I did get Chuck Wendig's Wanderers on ebook, uh, which I was intending to read on my wife's Kindle because I looked at the, the physical size of the thing and I thought, I've only got weak wrists. I can't, I can't hold the book like that up. Yeah, I see. I actually read the uh, the ebook of that, but I ended up getting a physical copy because I went and met him at a signing. Um, I guess it was right around the release date, and I was yeah. like, Well, I've got to have a physical copy now. So yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it is a toll. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, again, I mean, the, my wife has one of the C.J. Sanson books. Uh, I can't even remember which one, one of the fairly recent ones. And then the thing's like a thousand-page hardback. Like, it, it's to be looked at, but it's not to be read. You, yeah. can't, you can't pick that up and carry that around with you. Oh, yeah. You I mean, that, that's, you know, that's a lot of fantasy novels. I mean, uh, like Brian Lee Durfee's, uh, his, like, for uh, The Forgetting Moon and The Blackest Heart. I mean, those books are massive and they look gorgeous, but I'm not going to read a hardcover. (laughs) It's just, it's too much weight. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. The health and safety situation. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, you end up dropping it and you you stub a toad, you gin an edge. It's not good. So, yeah. Yeah. Especially when you're as poorly constructed as me. (laughs) Bones of chalk, balsa wood. Incredibly badly put together. Um, I'm trying to think, what is. he was one of the creators of The Office UK. Uh, Stephen Merchant. Stephen Merchant. Would you say that you're built like him? Oh, yeah. Yeah, he and I have, have much in common. I think he is taller than me and possibly gawkier. Um, but, <laughs> I mean, it, it's it's sort of degrees of infinity at this point, isn't it? Because just the way you talk about yourself and how tall you are and stuff, that's all. Like, I, Obviously, I've seen you because uh, we, we had a little bit of a video chat for a minute. But it's... it's <laughs> You have a very similar body type. So I just, like every time I think about it, it's Stephen Merchant. So you need to change your Skype picture. And I still need to find out why, <laughs> why Jude Law is your Skype photo. But you need to change it to Stephen Merchant. <laughs> the Jude Law is my avatar. It goes back 
such a long time to sort of like an office gag from 2009 or something. And it didn't really make sense at the time and it makes considerably less sense now, but changing it would be acknowledging that. And, you know, if there's one thing I've learned, it's that if you ignore problems long enough, they do go away. Mm -mm -mm. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Um, So, Obviously, I can't I can't end our podcast chat without mentioning uh, MadeAcon, which is coming up Mayday on May sixteenth, uh, which you were you were going to be a part of. Uh-huh. Um, so you're going to be on the Grim Dark, Grim Heart, or Just Low Fantasy You Decide panel alongside uh, Anna Stevens, who wrote the Godblind trilogy, uh, Ben Galley, uh, Peter McLean, and Rob Hayes. So. Yeah. Pretty awesome panel, in my, is, in my opinion. I'm very excited and a, and a little bit overawed. <laughs> you worried about it? You scared? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna do my best to sit in the corner and, and keep quiet and, and yeah, just you know, to <laughs> behave myself. Yeah, but people it, are gonna people, people are gonna drop out if you don't talk. Oh <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, I think it's gonna be I think it's gonna be a great time. I'm uh, I'm just trying to figure out how I'm gonna get through an entire day on like yeah, a I, cup I of was coffee. At the, um, I was looking at the timetable and I was thinking, well, I would like to I would like to watch all of the panels and all of the readings, but I mean that's that's a hell of a time. So I you know I don't, I don't know I'll be able to, to do sort of more than two or three just as a viewer. Uh, and then I thought, hang on, is David going to be moderating all of it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I know. And what's funny, Nick Martell and I talk about this all the time. This was just supposed to be he and I doing a Facebook Live chat where we just like took questions. And then what happened was like, uh, I think Mike Shackle and I think Jeremy Zoll like saw us talking about it. And then like all these other authors started being tagged in it. And then it became this convention. <laughs> and I was like, Okay, this is gonna be great. And I was like, I don't, I have trouble asking other people for help, and so I'm like, I'm just gonna moderate the whole thing. And my wife looks at me and she goes, Well, I'm gonna go to the lake, and you just have the house to yourself. <laughs> Running a one man fantasy convention, exactly. not going back. Exactly. It is a bit like it's another monkey's paw thing, isn't it? Be careful what you wish for. Yeah, exactly. But I, but again, like it's you know, it's kind of it's kind of like doing a day long podcast. But I don't really have to talk quite as much. I just like pose the question, and then I kind of sit back, laugh, and then ask questions <laughs> based on that. <laughs> so it's not too bad. And luckily, well, I, I hope you've got a laminated sign to hold up when a certain panelist, not mentioning any names, uh, starts to talk for too long and needs to be told to shut up. <laughs> I need to make one. I've, I was actually told to do that before yeah. when I actually began this. Cause yeah, I've, I've heard that, uh, and I haven't, I haven't come across any yet, but I've heard there are some authors that uh, are a little long winded in their responses. Can you imagine? <laughs> I wonder why, um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I've, I've got some breaks in between. It, it won't be too bad. I, I've got uh what? Six author readings, I think in between. So I've got about a half hour between each, each one and, and maybe all of them won't hit exactly an hour and a half, but um, I basically told all the, all the people that are doing readings. I'm like, all right, this is what I'm going to do. I'm going to send you the link. I'm going to, I'm going to introduce you. And then I'm just going to like blank out my screen yeah. and you just go. <laughs> Cause like I've got, 
I've got dogs. I need to yeah. eat at some point. I may need to make a second pot of coffee. <laughs> yeah, micro naps and energy drinks. And exactly, like exactly. I, I probably need to stock up. And see, I may end up switching from like energy drinks in the morning and afternoon to like beer at night. Or yeah. I may just drink beer all day, and we'll just like yeah. see how much just, how much better it gets. <laughs> think about how much uh, you know, you'll have a great time, and uh, yeah. I'm sure the questions will be perfectly intelligent. It'll be yes. great. Yeah, exactly. And everybody will be able to understand what I'm saying. You know, I mean, it's it's not the fact that I have a southern accent, but you know, just just the fact that I might mumble a few words. Um, it'll, it'll be fine. I mean, all the best questions start with some the some. Exactly. No, I think I think it's going to be a great time. I just hope, uh, you know, I, I hope we get some viewership. And I'm not I'm not too worried about it because what's nice is that not only will these be live streamed, they'll also be saved to my YouTube channel, and so yep. people can watch them whenever. So yeah, yeah. the, the only the only reserved. thing about seeing it afterwards is you can't act, ask questions in the past. So. <laughs> And that is true. Yeah, yeah. You can't go back and ask a question to a a, a panel that happened two hours prior. Yeah. So, <laughs> or Wall and Robin Hobb about a cliffhanger. It's not yeah. a cliffhanger. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but no, I think it's I think it's gonna be a great time. And yeah, so your your panel is gonna be uh, nine a.m. Central Time, uh, which. What is that? That's about what three o'clock your time? I, the I think yeah, it's probably three p.m. again. So I should be nicely lagered up by then. There I you mean, go. Uh, raring to go. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Yeah, so it'll it'll start at seven with some other uh, some other greats in, in in the UK and fantasy. So you got Angus Watson, Anna Smith, Spark, Gareth Hanrahan, Matthew Ward, and R.J. Barker, who we just talked about a few minutes ago. Yeah, yeah. Happy so lunch. it's uh, it's gonna be a great morning, a great afternoon, and it's gonna be a great night. It's just gonna be. It's gonna be a fantastic day all day. I just, you know, yeah. like you said, I might take some some micro naps in between. We'll see. I hope I hope you book the following day off to sleep. I did. I did. I, I have nothing going on that Sunday, so <laughs> I may I may just put an audio book in and just pass it off. Um, <laughs> oh my gosh! But uh, but David, so uh, everybody that's listening, you can follow uh, follow David on Twitter at it's Dave Rag. You can also uh, find his website DaveRag.com. Uh, and again, the Black Cox, which is book one in the Articles of Fate, is out now from Harper Voyager. And definitely go buy the cover if A, uh, you love Richard Anderson, B, you enjoyed The Kings of the Wild, or C, you actually want to read David's book. Um, <laughs> but no, seriously, it's it's a phenomenal book. Um, and if you're into audiobooks, uh, Colin Mace did the audio, and he's uh, – He's a phenomenal narrator. I mean, I know I've talked about him several times on this podcast, but uh, he he is really great. He did uh, Innisfil Sparks Empires of Dust trilogy. Um, he actually did uh, Ed McDonald's uh, Raven's Mark trilogy. I mean, he's doing a lot of fantasy novels uh, now. You know, here in the past couple of years, and and I'm sure plenty in the future. So definitely check it out. It's I think the book was about 400 pages. Is that right, give or take? Uh, well, 432 is the number I had in my head. Wait. <laughs> Grab one off the bookshelf. 425? Oh my, I must have cut more out. <laughs> Sorry, just a crap bit. Oh, you're good. But, uh, you got a page? Uh, 425. 425, okay. I didn't know if you were still flipping through. <laughs> no, 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 that was it. Uh, but yeah, it's, it, and obviously we'll, we'll look out for book two. Hopefully, uh, it comes sooner than later, but I know with, with all the COVID stuff, things are getting pushed out, but, we're definitely looking forward to book two. Do you have a possible well, title yet? 
I, I have a bunch of titles, and it will be none of them. Ah, okay. Uh, uh, just, just like it was, the first book wasn't called Articles of Fate? Exa- exactly that, <laughs> yes. I mean, they, they, but this is why you have professional editors and, and people in book production, because they, they're much better at this than I am. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, David, uh, I really appreciate you coming on today. And, uh, and again, I appreciate you wanting to take part in Mayday Con. Uh, I think it's I think it's going to be a great time. I, I enjoyed our chat here and I, I can only imagine how, how fun it's going to be uh, during the panel, but uh, just thank you again. And uh, thanks for writing such a great novel in the Blackhawks. I, I really enjoyed it. I hope everybody that's listening enjoys it. And we're definitely looking forward to book two. Oh, you're very kind. Thank you very much for having me on. It's been an absolute honor. Absolutely. Well, uh, you enjoy the rest of your day, I would say weekend, but the rest of your uh, day and a half <laughs> of the weekend. It's, it's just time inside the kids. Exactly. <laughs> and uh, let's try to do this again. Thank you. Thanks, Bye-bye. Dave.